Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm Jonathan Plucker. Screen time is a source of anxiety for many parents. Technology and media habits are evolving before our eyes. One study found that 42% of children under the age of eight now have their own mobile devices. How can we control what our kids see? How do we keep them from getting hooked? Are there specific issues that parents of bright students should be focusing on? My guest today has advice. Anya Kamenitz is the lead education blogger at NPR. Her new book is The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media in Real Life. Anya, welcome to Bright Now. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So uh, before we dive into this book, which I loved, by the way, uh, you are a CTY alumna. It's true. I owe you guys everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you just talk about that experience? What was it like? What yeah. did you gain from it, you think? It was really special for me. I attended public schools in Louisiana. At the time, I was in Baton Rouge, and I got the chance to come up north, visit Franklin and Marshall College was where my program was located. And we studied archaeology, which is a super fun class because it involved, you know, field work, excavation, as well as a lot of history. And the experience of being around other really bright, motivated kids who were setting really ambitious goals for themselves influenced me a lot. And it sparked my interest in coming up north for college and even some of the work I'm doing today. That is great. Thanks for sharing that. I, I just think it's always good for parents of current CTY students to actually see that, you know, there really are long-term payoffs to these programs. So you've got this new book. What was your motivation for writing this book? I, I noticed that you talk about your family a lot in it. Is it your own family? Was there a specific incident that made you think, wow, I really need to unpack what we know about this? What was kind of your motivation there? You know, it was really mostly a pattern that I noticed between my experience as a parent now of two girls and as an education reporter. And that was that in my education life, you know, I focus specifically on innovations in education. That's what I've been doing for a while. And there's so much talk about the promise of these kinds of digital technologies to enable kids to learn anywhere, anytime, to follow their interests, to get 21st century skills. But at home, as a parent, there was a limit of information, and the information you were getting was basically that you need to monitor and control your kids' media use. And if you don't do that, you're a bad parent. If you do it, you're a good parent. And that just seemed to me to be such a limited picture when I thought about it, and there was so much tension between the idea of you know, tech as the savior in schools and tech as the boogeyman at home that I thought there has to be another way of looking at this. Yeah, that theme throughout your book really, really resonated with me. You sort of take a moderate tone there. I remember I entered the classroom in, let's just say, the early to mid-90s, not to date myself too much. And even then, thinking about how archaic the technology is compared to today, it was still, wow, look at what computers are going to do. They're going to change everything. And they didn't really change anything. I was a chemistry teacher. It didn't change hardly anything in what I did. But then obviously in the last decade, especially, right, the technology, just the rate of change is so massive. And now with big data, it kind of has changed everything. But in the book, I think you do a really good job of pointing out that we actually don't know as much as you think think we would about the effects of this. Why is it so hard for us 
to get a handle on what the effects of these devices and the content and the constant networking, like what are the really challenging issues there? Well, gosh, I mean, you know, when I started reading up on this, I was for sure that I had just, you know, missed this entire body of research and come to find out that the last major piece of federally funded research on media and children was published in 1982. Um, So there's been a dearth of funding for this kind of research. The technology itself has changed so rapidly. So even if you designed a study, let's say in 2010 or 2013 or even 2016, the tech would be so different. A lot of the times the studies that we're relying on are, you know, coming from decades of research on television, which is much less interactive, and it doesn't really give you the sense of what it's like for kids when these devices have entered into the home, and they're really coming everywhere that kids are. You know, that unsettled feeling that so many people can relate to when you see a baby swiping away at a phone or an iPad in a stroller, it really raises a lot of questions about what is this kind of focused stimulation doing to kids when it's available to interrupt almost any other kind of interaction or situation. And and that is really the question that is being raised again and again, but without all of the evidence that we'd like. There's a structural ethical reason why we don't have the best research, and that is, you know, you can't randomly assign babies to watch television. There's no, uh, there's ethical issues with randomized controlled trials with a lot of these things that we suspect might have detrimental effects. And so we're forced to rely then on observational surveys, longitudinal studies, and a lot of other things that don't always meet the gold standard for evidence. I really like how you differentiate between risk and harm. What should parents of bright students know about the distinction between the risk of these devices and the actual harm? Well, there's a couple of different ways of thinking about this, but I think probably the best analogy I can think of is like a peanut, right? So, there's always a risk in giving a child a peanut for the first time because some children are really allergic. But if you find that giving someone a peanut doesn't do any harm, you can suspend that anxiety, right? So you have discovered something about your kid. So when you look at impacts on kids, behavioral, social, emotional, cognitive, things like interactions with tension deficit disorder, depression, anxiety, cognitive issues, Mostly the media interactions are pretty small, and they are contradictory sometimes from study to study. And one of the explanations that's been advanced for this is the idea of differential susceptibility. And what that means is that most kids are pretty averagely resilient. They are pretty good in the general media context. And we have to remember that our kids are swimming in a sea of media, right? So hours per day, you know, it depends on which study you look at, but you know, peaking around four hours a day for preschoolers, much, much higher than that when they get their own devices. We're looking at, you know, from tweens through adults, upwards of six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day of media when you include homework, when you include music listening. And so that is a lot. And yet our kids are mostly doing fine, you know, with, you know, broad exceptions and, and things like poverty and things like family structure have a lot more impact on kids' outcomes than the level of media that they're imbibing. But there may, in fact, be a small percentage of kids who are sensitive to media. And these are the kids that are prone to problematic relationships to media. And we see that that co-occurs with some of the conditions that I mentioned. And and this may be many of our brightest kids. You know, if you have a kid who has ADHD issues, if you have a kid who has anxiety, depression, maybe they're on the autism spectrum somewhere, these are all conditions that are correlated with higher screen use and higher levels of problems with screen use. 
essentially uh, treat every kid like an individual, right? General guidelines on X number of hours a day, you know, or they should only use this type of device. I mean, that's true in general, but it may not be true for any one kid. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it because of the crudeness of the guidelines that have gotten out there to parents. I still get parents asking me, you know, my kid, you know, say they really love programming or they're doing a deep dive, they're researching their interests and they just want to do this for hours every day. Is this a problem? And the answer is always, you know, it's a problem if it's a problem. You always want to keep things in balance. You want to make sure that they're getting outdoor time. You know, I was the biggest bookworm in the world and my parents were interested in my getting, you know, physical activity, being outdoors, being time with the family, but they would never restrict my access to books and they would never red flag the idea that I was reading eight, nine hours a day, which maybe I would do on holidays. I don't think I could get that done during the school <laughs> school time. But, you know, the point is that we smile on that if it's a book, but if it's a screen, many of our kids, especially our bright kids, they're doing amazing things on screens and we need to honor that and respect it. Yeah, you just reminded me of uh, a story that I like to tell about my uh, 12-year-old. He spends a lot of time on that iPad, and we were really concerned. You know, oh, he's just he's just wasting his time. He's wasting his time, until I really monitored it closely for like a couple weeks, and he was doing world geography quizzes, and he was studying North Korean political history, and I thought, well, maybe not so bad, <laughs> and, uh, it, right? Right, right. If he was sitting on the floor with the encyclopedia, we wouldn't have batted an eye at it, but he's getting the information in different ways. Well, that's exactly right. And I think that speaks to the role of the conscientious parent in the screen age, which is to have a clue about what your kid is doing online and not to blanket condemn it. In fact, when you start to ask those questions, it gives you an opportunity to be engaged and be complimentary where you can be because we're really trying to build bridges into our kids' digital world because this is the world where they're going to be spending, you know, a lot of their lives going forward. Let's talk a little bit about what the sparse research actually does say. I'm going to ask you about what the obvious positive benefits are, but is there any clear research base on the potential negatives here? Yeah, I kind of rank the results in my book. And the first thing I talk about is sleep because researchers understand the mechanism really well. They understand how the blue light interferes with the production of melatonin, so particularly with handheld devices because they're close to your eyes, shining in your face. That really interferes with drowsiness at the appropriate time. Um, we see a lot of concerns about kids getting appropriate sleep because of the availability of talking to their peers at all hours, which is another aspect that really um, gets them kind of involved. They may be into this late night cycles of group texting or social media where it's really, really compelling to them because if kids have access to their friends all night long, they're going to be up all night long talking to them. And it might be okay for three weeks in the summer, but it's not okay when it's all the time. You also talk about links to obesity in the book. Yeah, that's another pretty broad and well-founded connection, um, mainly with television. But we know that kids are still spending a lot of their online time watching videos as well, which is a pretty passive activity. And the worry here, obviously, you know, we know that children and teen um, weights have gone up, obesity has gone up. And the idea here being to not eat while watching and not, not allow mindless eating, that seems to be one of the biggest dangers there. What does the research say about the positive benefits? Do we have many studies at this point that actually give us evidence about the positive benefits? 
of course, we'd like to see more independent research, and that seems to be something that there's a dearth of. But it's pretty well accepted, you know, among mainstream media researchers that children can learn and transfer knowledge from television, and they can learn both things that are the foundation for literacy, early childhood stuff, as well as pro-social messages, messages about friendship, about bullying, about gender roles, both positive and negative. There's a lot that children are absorbing from what they see. On top of that, there is promising evidence from studies about purpose-built gaming and different kinds of games that can help children develop attentional control. So ironically, perhaps there are some studies that show certain kinds of video games actually improve the symptoms of ADHD if kids are trained on them. And then we're also seeing that games being a way to really garner a lot of engagement for kids that they can be a really powerful learning tool as well. And then there's some studies on, you know, different kinds of educational software. That's not something that kids mostly gravitate towards on their own, but there are small studies showing that in purpose-built educational software, you can get effects that are similar to having an individual tutor. Hmm. If you could make one recommendation for parents and students regarding technology use, things like that, is there one that's really jumped out at you after you've really immersed yourself in this topic? Yeah, it's that parents sit down with their kids and ask them what they did online today. You know, what's the latest site that you're visiting? What network are the kids on at school? What's a cool video you want to show me or something you're curious about that we could look up together? Henry Jenkins, who's a new media scholar I quote in the book, is really clear on saying, you know, we know what it looks like to be supportive of our kids' soccer habit or their French horn habit. It may not be because we love band music arranged for middle schoolers that we go to their band concerts, but we do it because we love our kids and we take an interest in what they're doing. And how much more so with this world that they're spending several hours a day with, that they're going to be using every day for their work. We want to be that interested, supportive person. We don't want to be someone who metaphorically just stalks our kids and follows them around as they go around the web. We want to be the person who takes an interest and helps them share it so that hopefully when they get into maybe a bad situation online, we're going to be the ones that they turn to as well. Right, to show them that we have that trust and communication open just in case things do go wrong. Right, and that we approve of what they're doing. I mean, we want to be able to approve of what they're doing. And and in order to do that, we have to be positive influence and a good role model as well. Well, I really appreciate you speaking with us today. And I just want to plug your book here. I gave myself two solid weeks to sort of work through it, and I ended up reading it in about 48 hours. I thought it was just fantastic. You're just such an engaging writer, and I really liked how you took these pretty complex issues, like research design issues. You just translated it so well into sort of parent language, and I cannot recommend the book enough to all of our listeners. So uh, that's it for this episode of Bright Now. Anya, I'm so glad that you could join us today. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Anya Kamenetz is the author of The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media in Real Life. She's the lead education blogger at NPR and author of several great books on education and parenting that I highly recommend. What other subjects would you like us to cover on Bright Now? Write to us at brightnowpodcast at gmail.com and let us know. That's brightnowpodcast, one word, at gmail.com. Tune in next time. Until then, I'm Jonathan Plucker.
Right Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced K-12 students around the world. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.